Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Anybody here like me? If you had never seen a Larry Cohen film, you're going to be in for some really radically unique entertainment. Larry started as a writer, eventually became a director to protect Larry the writer. Yeah, shut up. We don't need all this bullshit. Bow, what was that? Larry Cohen is so much the invisible man. It's entirely possible to have seen a lot of his work without knowing you were seeing his work. His movies have this energy and this attack. Larry Cohen is like the white Martin Luther King for movies. I don't know what black exploitation means. Every movie is exploitation. So what? He's a madman, but he makes these great little films. There's a brilliance, there's a childish naughtiness about him. He would do things that were dangerous. Larry would not only shoot in the streets of New York, he would drive cars up on the sidewalk on the streets of New York. This is New York City. They just get out of the way when you're coming. I would go down to an area with 5,000 policemen and shoot a movie without permission. But Larry gave himself permission. Shell cartridges were raining down into the streets of New York. People think that there's a terrorist attack. He goes, get a cameraman and shoot somebody panicking. And then the next day, there were articles about it. They went, oh, Larry, you know. What you're really seeing is somebody who looks deeply at the present moment. Larry's movies not necessarily subtle. They're thoughtful. They're reflections of the world around him and the problems in that world. All the movies I do take something which is considered benevolent and turning it into some kind of monstrosity. What? What? Every time I make a movie, they always tell me that's not the way it's done. But I do it, and it works. He is the true independent filmmaker. He is jump out of the chopper, run and gun. Larry is the best gorilla filmmaker in the business. A wild maverick sense in the tradition of the handmade picture. He trusts his actors, and they trust him. The greatest dead devil Hollywood has ever seen. The reality of life is you don't know all the answers. You don't know why these things occur. Let's face it, anybody will put up with anything if they think a movie is being shot. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Today I'm talking to two filmmakers, Steve Mitchell and Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen is the subject of Steve Mitchell's documentary, King Cohen, The Wild World of Filmmaker Larry Cohen from 2017. It is out and about, and I would definitely check it out if I were you. Larry Cohen, definitely one of the less sung, I can't say unsung, because some of us sing them, 
if that makes any sense, one of the lesser sung heroes of the modern day cinema. Definitely check out his work and check out King Cohen, the wild world of filmmaker Larry Cohen. First up, let's hear from director Steve Mitchell. Tell me, how did you get started in the business? Well, the question is, like, which business? Because my first career uh, was in the comic book business. Uh, I inked comics for a long, long time. And one of the things that happened was because I was a freelancer, I decided to go west and uh, leave New York. I grew up in New York City, and, and well, New York is a great city. It's probably nicer now than when I, when I left city was kind of falling apart. I was tired of it. I was looking for a change. And because I was working freelance, I could pretty much work from anywhere. So uh, my buddy Jim Winorski had been pounding me about moving west, moving west, moving west, and, you know, eventually had an opportunity to get that done. So we, we packed up the wagons and, and uh, hitched up the horses and, and went west. And uh, I've lived out here a long time and uh, haven't uh, ever thought about leaving. I really like it out here. But my comics career allowed me to come west to sort of start my film career, such as it is, such as it was, et cetera. I worked with Jim Wynorski, I'm sure you know, on Chopping Mall. And that was one of those nepotism things. It was, hey, you want to write a movie kind of thing. Jim had been given an opportunity by Julie Corman. And Jim called me up one night. I think it was like a Wednesday night or Tuesday night. It couldn't have been more ordinary. And he said, hey, you want to go get some coffee? And I said, sure, what's going on? And he said, something interesting. So we went to a, a place and had a cup of coffee and some pie. And he told me that uh, Julie had been approached by Vestron Video to do uh, essentially, and this is uncharitable, but a dead teenager movie. Remember, it's the 80s and they were all over the landscape. You know, the Friday the 13th movies, I guess, being the sort of the, you know, the granddaddies of that genre. And so Jim and I can't, you know, I mean, this is, this is fairly well known, but once again, Jim and I came up with an idea for a bunch of teenagers being chased around a shopping mall by at the, at the time it was supposed to be sort of a Phantom of the Opera type killer. It was going to be much more of a slasher movie. And we kind of worked out the beats to it and we're all feeling very proud of ourselves. It seemed like it was at least viable, if not good. I mean, who knows if it was good, but it seemed viable. And then Jim said those famous words, what if we do it with killer robots? <laughs> yeah, I have one of those, those probably, uh, sitcom-y kind of takes where I'm going, uh, uh, okay. I had to wrap my head around it. I mean, obviously, uh, Jim had either thought about it beforehand or it was just a, a great moment of inspiration. So we took out the guy with the knife and we inserted, uh, the three killer robots and worked up a, kind of a half outline, half beat sheet, and gave it to Julie the next day. And she forwarded on to Vestron, and they said, okay, make it. We, we had a go picture without a script. We had to write the script. I mean, based just based on the beats, Vestron was going to finance this picture. And so Jim and I proceeded to write that, and then we made it. I mean, I can talk about chopping mall all day, but there's an awful lot of stuff on the record. But I, I was doing that. And then in addition to working on chopping mall and, and uh, you know, I was also writing animation because I had some friends who were in the animation business. 
And while I'm not really an animation kind of guy, I was approached by Steve Gerber, who you may or may not know if you know anything about comics, but Steve was, was the story editor on the G.I. Joe TVs, you know, animated TV series. And they needed a lot of episodes. And Gerber knew that I, you know, I was a movie guy and I had some, you know, designs about, you know, towards writing. And he approached me and I, I'm frankly, I'm just not really an animation guy, certainly TV animation, certainly back then. And he said, well, don't think of it as animation. Think of it as, think of it as live action. And I said, oh, okay. And that's exactly how I wrote it. And then the other mandate was, he said, write it like cut film. I mean, call for the cuts. You know, don't allow anybody to sort of interpret what you want. Be specific about what you want. So that was, that was great. That was a great, uh, um, experience and, I don't know how many how many episodes of G.I. Joe wrote. I know I wrote one or two Transformers and a, and a few other things as well. But when you're actually thinking about creating the pieces of film, it's really a very useful exercise uh, if you want to write film. But, of course, you don't really write film that way. You generally create situations for the actors and the directors, and they usually sort of figure it out on set. But for animation, it was that specific. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So, you know, I did that. I've written a couple of other films. The animation thing kind of went away, although I worked at HBO on the Spawn animated series. You know, I was uh, part of their uh, storyboarding crew. And I have just sort of this kind of bizarre mixed master sort of career. And then, you know, in the 90s, I started doing DVD special features, you know, producing them and doing commentaries and, and stuff like that. And then uh, all of that kind of led to Larry. Talking about the animated scripts, I'm very curious as far as, are you going so far as to say, close up, this is happening, or are you, you were talking about the cuts, are you just saying like, at this oh, point? Oh yeah, no, it was, it, you know, I mean, it was one of those things where, I mean, I remember, I think there was, I was setting up kind of an action sequence in uh, an alpine pasture, probably somewhere in Colorado or something like that, where, the Cobra, the Cobra bad guys in their winter garb were about to ambush, you know, a bunch of G.I. Joe guys. And literally, you're thinking of a silent movie montage where you have close-ups of the bad guys. You have them raising their weapons. You have them inserting clips into them. You know, I think at one point, I think I called for somebody maybe to use their thumb to take a safety off something. I mean, it was literally you're building the sequence through the cuts. And the one thing that was interesting about that was that it made for very long scripts. Most animation scripts, I was told, were supposed to be around 30 pages. Well, G.I. Joe scripts were about 50 to 60 pages because there was so much specific information about cuts and, and pieces. And I later found out that I think it was Gerber trying to write storyboard artist-proof scripts. You know, he didn't want to trust the storyboard guys to, you know, stage it. He wanted the writers to stage it. He wanted, you know, he wanted the scripts to tell them what to do, um, which I think, you know, ruffled a few feathers maybe. But the quality of those, the quality of those shows was pretty good, you know, except for the kind of cheesy animation, which, you know, on TV animation, let's face it, it's not going to look like Disney. That's for sure. I remember liking those shows quite a bit. I mean, I have to admit, I didn't watch a lot of Gem, which I think you wrote for as well. Yeah, yeah, sadly, uh, I did, but you know, the money was good, so I didn't, I didn't want to say no to that. But I do remember liking the, the G.I. Joe episodes quite a bit, and because they felt more like little movies than television episodes. 
they were cinematic in their own way. And uh, I think Steve Gerber deserves pretty much all the credit for that. I know that he inspired us to think that way. He inspired us. He says, we're not, we're not doing Saturday morning cartoons here. We're trying to do stuff that has more value. And one of the things that was great was the only restriction we had in terms of the action was we couldn't kill anybody. It was all that A-team stuff where you know, things would blow up and, you know, guys would go running away and stuff like that. But, uh, there was, you know, there was, uh, hand-to-hand combat. We had no restrictions and limitations on that. I mean, you couldn't stab anybody, obviously. But, you know, it was, there was a lot of freedom. And Steve was always saying, uh, all right, think stranger, think weirder, think different, think more cinematically. He was always trying to push it. And so it was a great experience for me. It was fun. And I made a couple of good friends working over, you know, with those guys as well. When you're freelancing for the comics industry, who are you freelancing for at that time? Because this was kind of a an interesting age of comics because I remember there was kind of the splintering off of the other titles than just DC and Marvel around this time. In the 80s, I was working mostly for Marvel. At that time, I started at DC, but in the 80s, I was working mostly for Marvel. I had a very long run on Iron Man with Luke McDonald. He was penciling and I was inking it. And I think we worked on that book at least for a couple of years. Um, and that was the, the storyline, which, you know, uh, had Tony Stark uh, pretty much drinking himself into an alley on a snowy day. I think there was a, there was this great cover that that Luke had penciled where you know Tony Stark is sitting in the dead end alley, and it's sort of a god's eye view of him, and you know he's just he's pretty much at the end of his tether. That was also the storyline which I think introduced this character Obadiah Stane, who ultimately was played by Jeff Bridges in the first Iron Man movie. So I was somewhat involved with that, but of course I never saw a nickel for it. But you know that showbiz. And so I had that long run over over at Marvel on Iron Man. And then I think in the 90s, I had about a three-year run working with Norm Breifogel on Batman. I think I did two years on Detective and I think a year or so on Batman. And then there's other stuff in between. But, you know, you tend to remember the things that you were associated with the longest. And then the 90s was just a wild and wacky period where I think I wound up going back I mean, after I did the Batman run at DC, I think I was offered, yeah, I was offered Iron Man again, which is hilarious because anybody knows me, knows that I hate ruling lines and using templates and I hate doing technical stuff. I'm much more of a, uh, a spontaneous kind of, you know, I just want to go in there and whack away at it, uh, with a brush or a pen or something like that. And doing all the, that Meccano stuff was just not, it was never my thing. Some guys are great at it. You know, it's almost like they were born to do it. That was never me. But somehow I, you know, they liked, they liked what I was doing. I also worked, you know, I don't know if you remember this company, Milestone, which was this uh, company that was doing these urban characters. And uh, I worked on a uh, one of their initial characters, uh, Static, who I think has become fairly popular as an animated character. Um, so yeah, the nineties, I was very, very busy in the nineties. In fact, I, I was working mostly in comics in the nineties because the money was good. You know, sometimes real life and money make the decisions about what, on what, about what you do, you know, and I was busy too. That was the other thing. I was really, really busy. 
One more question before I start asking about Larry Cohen. When it comes to the extra work that you're doing, are you working with Mike Felsher on this stuff? No, I'm not working with Mike. Um, I've heard of Mike. I've never met Mike. I know people who, who know Mike, uh, but uh, no, I'm not working with him. I've never met him. You know, uh, when I, back in the night, you know, I started, you know, it's, it's funny. I started doing this kind of work because I was a fan, actually. Um, you know, I'd written, I had been, uh, uh, huge, I was a huge, and I had been, I am a huge fan of the old combat TV series. And my buddy Steve Rubin called me up and said, you know, I, I sort of heard that Image Entertainment is going to do combat on DVD. I said, oh, well, that's exciting. He said, do you, you think we're going to call him up and see if we can do some extras or something? Because Steve was, Steve and I are both big fans of the show. We're also big war movie fans. He had written a, a couple of books about war films. And it was one of those, well, why not type things. So we called them up and they said, sure. And we did a bunch of extras for them for the first season initially for kind of next to nothing. Actually, it was, it was one of those things where I was able to jump in the pool on this stuff. I had never really thought about doing it, although I had done film journalism a hundred years ago in my youth when I lived in New York. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, huge movie guy. You know, what a surprise. And so I brought some of that skill set to bear with combat and they were very happy with what we did because they didn't give us uh, hardly any budget. And we put together a bunch of commentary tracks and we did, I think, I don't know, it was about a 20 minute featurette or something like that for season one. And that show was very, very successful on DVD initially. And then Steve sort of stepped out and I just continued to do it. I produced all of the extras for all five seasons of combat for image. And, uh, I think the big, the high point was that I managed to, and God, this is in season one. That's true. This is in season one. I managed to get Robert Altman to do two commentary tracks. I set it up. I flew back. I interviewed him. We watched two episodes together at his office. And the only thing I was unhappy about was that it was sort of, I was interviewing him and he was having a conversation with me, but basically I was the invisible interviewer. Um, and so a couple of spots where if you, if you really pay attention, you know, he's sort of talking to me when in point of fact, we're trying to create the sense that it's a monologue, but Hey, I got Robert Altman to watch two episodes of combat with me and talk about them. And you know, it was interesting. He was, he was very pleased with what he watched and he was very proud of it. And he's, he said to me, he says, you know, I don't know that I could have done, could have done it any better, you know, you know, even later, you know, if he'd had more time or more money, he was very pleased with what he did. And if you watch those episodes that he directed, uh, you can tell that there's something going on there, that, that this is being directed by a guy who has a real, you know, eye for it and a real handle on how to direct. And, um, I, you know, as I say that, I said, you know, I, I wish he'd maybe done one or one or two action movies of some kind, even if they weren't, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, comic booky things, but more genre type things where I'd like to see him sort of, you know, use those skills that he had that he displayed on combat. He was very good with action. There are a couple of sequences in, in, in some episodes of combat where I thought the action was really, really good and well staged. So uh, that was probably the, the real high point, but I continued to do these things after Steven went away. And again, they were barely paying me anything. It was, I was doing it because I loved it. And at one point, I think it was sometime in season two, 
or maybe season three when I was putting some commentaries together that one of the editors up there, a guy named Kai Thomasian, who turned out to be, my, who's my editor on, on Larry Cohen, but I will, I, I won't get ahead of myself. Uh, he said, you know, you're very chatty with the people before we get started. And then it kind of gets formal and you remind them that they're not talking to me. He says, well, why don't we do one where they are chatting with you? And so that was where my, my commentary career began. And I, and I said, how do I validate myself to the audience? You know, uh, how do I, I let, let the, the audience know that I'm not just some schmuck? And so I created the, uh, the, the, the sort of semi-famous intro of like, hi everybody. I'm Steve Mitchell, DVD special features producer for combat insert season. And that was my introduction on virtually all my commentary tracks. And, uh, we did some nice stuff. We, I got, I talked to some great people and we did some nice work and I, you know, got some nice insights. And then I produced and directed a number of uh, the featurettes for the later seasons that were done. So that kind of got me into the, you know, really into the filmmaking side of doing these, uh, you know, mini documentaries and stuff like that. So I had that skill set and that's, uh, just something that kind of helped get me to the point where I wanted to do Larry and point of fact just to sort of foreshadow the Larry doc, when I was at Image, because I was doing a bunch of stuff for them, I had the idea, the original impulse to do this Larry documentary, because I think I was looking at the IMDB, and, and I was looking up some credit of Larry's, and I think I, I, I noticed, I said, oh my God, I, I was shocked at the amount of stuff that he had done that I was unaware of, because I was a fan of his movies, and I was a fan of you know the TV stuff aware of everything. Uh, you know, I was a big fan of the invaders. You know, I kind of like blue light. But as I saw that IMDB page of his, you know, which is as long as your arm, he had done so much work that I was unaware of. In addition to all of the work that I was aware of, I said, man, this guy's got a hell of a career. And the other thing that I then noticed was how he was working independently and working in mainstream at the same time. And I said, this is different. Nobody really has this career. So I was talking with one of the people up at Image, who was one of the uh, business people I was I had a relationship with, and you know I said, uh, I wonder if it, would you guys be interested in doing this? And we kind of they said, well, look at the numbers and you know see what it's going to cost. You know I think everybody wants to acquire stuff; they don't want to produce it; they want to acquire it because if you acquire it, you know you spend far less than you do if you actually write the, the producing check. So. We did some of the math. We looked into the cost of the clips and what what rentals would be, and it would it was going to be kind of prohibitive. Not the, the filmmaking part of it would have been reasonable, but the clip part of it would have been prohibitive had we had we gone that route. And then they kind of shot it down. But in the back of my mind, I said, I don't know if I can let this go yet. Here we are, right? So, about what time was that? What what year are we talking? I don't know. Oh seven, oh eight. Maybe oh nine, but I was thinking about that, and then it kind of went away. And then later on, I don't know, it's about three years ago, maybe. You know, time has just telescoped on this project. My my one of my partners was saying, I think the the first impulse for this thing started probably close to three years ago, and that sounds about right because before I uh, hooked up with my producing partners uh, Matt Verboys and Dan McKeon. I tried to do this on my own as an Indiegogo crowdfunding project. I donated May 10th, 2013, so it's been going on since at least then. Okay, well, so that's right. You did do that, and that was a, as, a, as crowdfunding goes, 
it was a colossal flop. I was so not good at crowdfunding, and I th- I think I've since sort of discovered you have that's kind of a very unique skill set. But hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Again, though, even after uh, that falling on its face, I didn't let go. And what was interesting, and then of course the other thing is before I started the crowdfunding thing, I had, I had to approach Larry. You know, I said to myself, well, I want to do it, but what if he doesn't want it done? I knew somebody who knew, I think, Loreen Landon, and I got the number through this uh, friend of mine. And I literally called Larry up one day and said, hi, I'm Steve Mitchell. I'm, I'm interested in producing a, a documentary about you. I'm a big fan of yours, and I think you know your career should be celebrated. And then Larry said something very clever, like, "Well, I'm all for having my life celebrated, you know, or something like that." He says, "Come up, come up to the house. I'll make you a cup of coffee, and we can talk about it." So we went up there, and he made me a cup of coffee, gave me a couple of pepperidge farm cookies, and we discussed it. And he said, "Well, if you can get it financed, I'll help you in any way I can." And I think at the time he gave me access to his. I'll call it the archive. It wasn't anywhere nearly that well organized. Trust me, it was a bunch of stills and a bunch of boxes. But still, it was in its own way his archives, and that's where I got a lot of material to do the original trailer for the Indiegogo thing. Which, again, like I said, it was a colossal failure in pretty much every way. But uh, you know, it was it was an interesting experience. And then what happened? I didn't want to let Larry down. I mean, I yeah, I went and met Larry, and you know, I told him I wanted to do this. And, you know, I just didn't want to be some schmuck who has a good idea but can't follow through. So, uh, sometime later, uh, after that fiasco, I met Matt Verboys at uh, at Comic Con. Now, Matt Verboys is one of the co-owners of La La Land Records, the uh, soundtrack label. You know, they produce collectible limited edition uh, CDs. They were a company that I knew because I'm a movie music fan. And I met Matt at Comic-Con, and he said, you can see Mitchell at Road Shopping Mall? And I said, yeah. And he says, I'm a huge fan. I think that was the first inkling that I got, that there was a huge shopping mall fandom out there, which until that point, I don't think I really knew. And we made the movie. We were proud of that movie, and it kind of went into the, you know, into the ether. And, you know, uh, it was... uh, you know, popular enough, I guess. And, uh, but I had, we had no idea that it was, it was such a, a cult picture. It was an enormous cult picture. And I never knew that until, you know, years and years later. That being said, that's how Matt knew, knew my name. And we became very chummy. 
and uh, we socialized a little bit. I don't know. I think it was maybe had the better part of a year after we met. Uh, I think some. I think months before I, I asked, he had said that La La Land was possibly looking to do other things. You know, they wanted to maybe try and do things other than soundtrack. And of course, it took months for that to sort of penetrate my marble thick head. And then I said, I wonder if he might be interested in doing the Larry thing, because I knew he was a movie fan and he was a genre fan. So I called Matt up and uh, I said, hey, Matt, it's Steve. You know, uh, I got I, I, I want to propose something to you, you know, because you, you mentioned about expanding and maybe trying to do different types of projects. And, you know, I wanted to you know have lunch with you and talk about it. He says, well, I'm, I'm not sure that we're in a position to do it, but let's have lunch. So we go have lunch. Uh, at a restaurant which was about two blocks away from Warner Brothers, which seemed appropriate. And we, we and I, I said to him, I said, well, listen, the reason I wanted to get together with you is I've been, I've been trying to get this documentary done about Larry Cohen. I wonder if you'd be interested in this. And he said, I'm already interested. So, I mean, I didn't even have to pitch. I didn't have to tell him who Larry was. I didn't have to say he's got this crazy career. He, he was already pretty much there. And by the time lunch was done, he said, the, you know, the famous words, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. And now here we are about ready to unleash it on uh, an unsuspecting world. You have gotten so many terrific interviews for this film. I'm so curious how you went around doing that. What, did you employ some of those contacts that you're using when you were doing the DVD extra stuff? It all sort of started with Larry. We started interviewing Larry, and God, I think we got 20-some-odd hours of interview footage with him. Once you put Larry in front of a camera, you don't have to work. I mean, I had done tons of you know pregame and and prep and questions and, and stuff like that. It was the first day I learned, you sit Larry down, you put a camera on, and you light him, and you put a camera you know on, and you say, action. And then we literally kind of gone out for lunch for a couple of hours and he wouldn't have noticed that we were gone. I mean, he just, he's off to the races. I mean, uh, I've said this a million times. I'll say it a million more times. Larry is the energizer bunny. He just keeps going and going and going. And that's in terms of his energy, but also in terms of, you know, uh, his creativity. I mean, this, this guy is, is one of a kind. And so we started with Larry and then we started going after people that we sort of had easy connections to. I think our first day when we were doing uh, interviews other than the Larry interviews, I think we scheduled five or six for one day. And that first day included John Burlingame, who is a film music historian and a guy you always want to have in any project. You know, he's, he's, he's fantastic. And we talked to uh, um, uh, David Scow, who was somebody I knew, and Dave Scow uh, was the original writer of um, Pick Me Up, which was uh, one of the masters of horror segments. And David uh, wrote the uh, short story and then wrote the script. And so I knew David and yeah, a few other a few other people. I think Ryan Turek maybe was was one of our our first interviews on that that initial day. But we used a store in Burbank called Creature Features as kind of our studio slash set. And Taylor White, who owns the store, is a is a good friend of ours. And uh, he just said, "Well, the store is closed on Monday, so 
you know, come in and shoot on Monday and then you can control it. And because we had control that first day, we were able to get through, I think, five or six interviews. Yeah, I think it was about five or six interviews. And we, you know, we sort of started at about 10 and then went to about, I don't know, seven or eight. But it was great to have that sort of control. And it was also great to be able to just sort of, you know, on your first day, bank a bunch of interviews right out of the gate. And that was, and then we just started to do everything piecemeal. We would find people, we would, we would find a way to get in touch with them. And then we got in touch with them. And, uh, a lot of people said yes. A few people said no. It's like making a cake and you have to find the ingredients. You know, you can't just start with all the ingredients. You just sort of have to find the ingredients. And that's sort of how we did it. And then, you know, we had to hunt some people down, but somehow we, we managed to get it done. You mentioned before what a prolific filmmaker, I mean, just his writing career alone, not even to talk about his directing career, but the guy's done so much stuff. How do you even begin to approach kind of forming that into a 90-minute, two-hour, whatever your running time is documentary at the end of the day? My editor, as I said before, was a fellow named Kai Thomasian, who I met at Image and pretty much cuts everything I do. And Kai, if Kai was on this call, he would say, well, there's usually a point when Steve melts down, freaks out, and he needs to just be reassured that somehow we'll figure it out. And that happens all the time. And when you do, when you're doing, you know, I mean, and that was like doing featurettes. That was like doing material that was less than an hour. And. But we're making a movie, and a movie sort of has has a different structure than a featurette does. Um, sort of, not entirely, but sort of. And there was no script. You interview people. Basically, these things are made by interviewing sub people, subjects, and um, you go through all the material, and then you try and figure out how to tell the story. And what we did was we used Larry's career as the spine. But what we were trying to do is create a picture of who Larry is as a creator. You know, it wasn't just, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he did this, and then he did that. And there's a little bit of that because it's chronological, because the chronology of Larry's career is sort of interesting, especially when you, you know, when we found out that he started, he started his writing career in live TV at the end of the 50s in New York, you know. And so we used, the, the chronology as kind of the spine, but we use the movies to sort of illustrate an aspect of what he's like as a creator and as as a person. For example, when we talked about his uh, his Salem's Lot movie, uh, Return to Salem's Lot, it's not so much about Salem's Lot and Stephen King as it was about Larry's relationship with Samuel Fuller. So that that movie, that experience gave us insight into his relationship with Sam Fuller. And in a sense, when you think about it, Sam Fuller and Larry Cohen are cut from very similar cloth. You know, they're writer, producer, directors, um, and they have a very unique voice. And what was nice about that was to show Ace Larry's relationship with Sam, but also to just to show that that. There are not, not a lot of these guys around. When you look at the history of film, there aren't many of those guys. The other guy, the modern day version of that is, I think, Tarantino. You know, that there is a, a, a certain voice that comes from these guys when they make movies that is truly and uniquely their voice. 
Uh, I, I just, as an aside, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, a guy that I wrote a movie with, uh, a guy by the name of Bob Sheridan, before we would write, we would usually get caught up on stuff we watched and, and, uh, you know, talk about movies, you know, that, uh, that we liked or didn't like and wanted to share. And well, I remember one day he said, so you know, Bob had an interesting way of talking. You know, he said, he said, Ooh, I, uh, yeah, I saw this, uh, Larry Cohen movie the other night, the perfect strangers, you know, it was kind of this, you know, almost like an underground type of movie that, you know, like a thriller and, and, and I said, so how was Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He always smoked, and he would take, took a drag on a cigarette. He kind of nodded his head, and he goes, um, it's a Larry Cohen film. I understood completely, without knowing anything about the movie, what he meant. And how many filmmakers can you say that about? He's going to say, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Well, you know exactly what it is. It's a Sam Fuller movie. You know, I mean, I would add, say, Sam Peckinpah to this list, and certain auteurs. You know, that's what I was trying to do with the with with this documentary in a lot of ways is to, is to basically show people who Larry Cohen is, what a Larry Cohen film credit really means at the end of all of his movies and try and create a portrait through the work, the, the career, you know, try to create a portrait of him, a professional portrait of him uh, using his career as a spine. And by the way, it takes you a long time to get there. It took us a long time to try and sort of figure out, not so much the spine, because we have the chronology, but to try and sort of figure out how to do that. Uh, there, they have that there were more than one, the one, uh, of these instances where I, if you ever see the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, where he, where he's at the crossroads at the end, we had a lot of castaway moments when we were cutting this movie. You know, which way do we go with this? And, you know, when you do a documentary, at least in my case, that sometimes there's a lot of throwing stuff against the wall to see if it sticks. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you have to take a sequence apart and tear it apart and sort of say, well, what are we trying to say with this? And that's why it takes a while to make one of these things, not just getting all the, you know, the ingredients, but then taking those ingredients and creating something from those ingredients. And it's maybe there's a better way to do it, maybe a faster and more efficient way to do it. But when it's just, you know, when, when, when somehow when I'm in the mix of my editor, that's kind of how we have to do it. But we sort of figure it out. I mean, one of our mantras was, we'll figure it out. When I think of Larry's work uh, as feature films, especially, I tend to think of Michael Moriarty. It feels like he worked with him quite a bit. Was he pretty much the go-to actor for him for a while, or were there others that he really relied on for many, many films? Well, James Dixon is in almost all of his movies, but they're, they're old friends. I think they were in the Army together, so they, they have that personal thing. But once he worked with Moriarty on Q, he always was thinking of Moriarty. I mean, Moriarty to Larry Cohen was what John Wayne was to John Ford in a lot of ways, the go-to guy. And, you know, once Larry knew how talented Moriarty was, Larry started writing with Moriarty in mind 
And their relationship is very, very interesting. And Moriarty was a very, very big get for us. We kind of knew that if we didn't get Moriarty, we would be, I'm not going to say in trouble, but I just don't know that we could have represented, you know, the career perhaps as accurately without Moriarty, considering that they had done five projects together. And it took a little hunting to get Moriarty. I got to tell you, you'd, you'd asked before about uh, using connections. We had no idea how to get in touch with Moriarty. He didn't have any representation. And he had become an exile living in Canada after Law and Order. I think he had some issues with Dick Wolf. And I think then, I think it was Janet Napolitano, who was our attorney general back back in the day. And then he sort of exiled himself up to Canada. And so we had no idea where the hell he was and, and how to find him. And, and I'm going, well, no Moriarty, you know, I'm not going to go. I'm not, I wasn't going to be that, that bleak and say no Moriarty, no documentary, but Moriarty was a very key player. And then I remember one day I was looking at the Cinema Retro, I think, website. I think maybe I saw something on Facebook that took me to the website. And they had done something about Moriarty. And they said that he was writing for a conservative blog. I think that was, uh, I don't know if it was situated in Canada or or where it was. But I, I, th I think that the Canada thing was present in this article that I think Lee Pfeiffer had written about Moriarty. So I said, well, let me send an email to the blog and see if I can get some, you know, some conduit perhaps to, to Moriarty. And so I wrote, I wrote this email and I sent it off and I, I was, I was cutting with Kai one day. It was literally, it was actually literally just about 24 hours later and my smartphone rings and I see on the, on the screen, it says Vancouver. BC. I said, I said to Kai, I said, holy shit, this could be Moriarty. And I pick up the phone and I go, hi, it's Steve. And he goes, hello, Steve, Michael Moriarty. Nice to meet you. And I said, I said, boy, I've been looking all over for you. And he goes, well, now you found me. And he was the most delightful, charming guy. I said, I was doing this project. And he says, oh, I love Larry. And I, I said, you know, what, you know, where are you? Uh, can, can we come and interview you? And he mentioned that he lived in, uh, uh, Canada. He was in British Columbia. I don't think he was in Vancouver. I think he was uh, close enough to Vancouver. And he said, you know, and so we had decided that we would come to Vancouver and he would come, you know, to Vancouver and, and talk with us. And he wanted to know what the questions were. He says, I don't know if I remember very much, but maybe the questions will, stir something in my memory. And I said, okay, well, let me work on those and I'll get an opportunity. He goes, all right, thank you. And then, you know, so what a coup that day to know that we had connected with him and he was open to it. And so I sent him the questions and we, uh, we went to Vancouver one weekend and uh, we, we talked to Michael Moriarty and it couldn't have been more fun. You know, he's a delightful, charming guy. And after we were done, you know, he was staying in this hotel that he liked and we shot it in his hotel room. And he says, well, come on, fellas, let me buy you lunch. And we were, we wanted to buy him lunch, but he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't do that. And that was very nice. And we also were willing to pay for the hotel room, too. And he, he just said that he had not, yeah, he, he wouldn't have it. It was great. I, I enjoyed Moriarty a lot. And 
it was a huge get. He was a huge get and he was, he was terrific. I mean, he was fun and he had some, uh, he had a lot of good stuff to say about Larry. You know, the problem is when you do a project like this, there's so much you can't use. So what happens is you just say, all right, well, what can I, what am I going to use that's going to tell the overall story? You know, you have to think of the whole picture, not just the parts. And, uh, when this comes out on Blu-ray, I'm sure we will have <laughs> so, so many deleted scenes or extra scenes. Uh, it all, it, it, that may actually be, might actually be longer than the movie itself. But, uh, if you're into Larry and you're into the people who work for Larry, I, I pretty much can guarantee that there will be lots more stuff, lots more anecdotes, lots more to, uh, to, to listen to. You know, and Moriarty will be in there, and uh, along with other folks. I have to ask you, what was your experience like with Yafet Koto? Uh, that was an experience. That was an experience. Larry helped helped us with Yafet. Yafet is is a huge fan of Larry's because Larry created a part for him that was, I think, maybe Yafet feels it's, if it's not his best role, it's one of his best roles and a very significant role for him at the time. You know, Bone, which is a very interesting movie if you haven't seen it. It's it's crazy, nutty, cuckoo, uh, and it shows to me a Larry that I I sort of wish Larry had sort of stayed more on the track. You know, of Bone. You know, to me, Bone felt almost like a play. You know, I felt Larry the playwright coming through in that, and I thought it was. I, I think it's a really, really interesting film. Um, I'm not surprised it was not at all successful. But for Yafet, it gave Yafet a great part, a great opportunity, and a very full-blooded, interesting role. And Yafet's very grateful to Larry. So we connected with Yafet. Yafet was coming into town. Larry helped set it up, and we were going to interview Larry at a hotel in Burbank. And that's when the adventure started. <laughs> Yafet is a son of, I believe... Nigerian Jews. He is Jewish and, and he is not a convert. I think, I think his parents were African and Jewish. And so, and he grew up in Harlem and he went to college and he was into Shakespeare. I mean, he's a very complicated kind of guy and he has a very sort of complex, interesting background. And he and I had two conversations on the phone and he said, he says, well, you're going to be doing the interview. And I said, yeah, I said, I, I feel like we're connecting. And I said, well, I hope so. I, I, cause, you know, I look forward to chatting with you. I have, I have so much to talk to you about, you know, and you're my favorite FBI agent of all time, you know, Agent Mosley, you know, from Midnight Run. And so everything was in place. We got it set up and we, we arranged for the space in his hotel. And then when we were ready to go, I called him up and he says, uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be down. I'll be down. You know, and I'm going, uh oh, I'm, I'm feeling, you, you sort of develop a sixth sense when you're dealing with people, you know, in a famous people that you want to interview. And my spidey sense was kind of telling me this might be a little difficult today because I think Yafet had, I think had a little bit of an accident. He fell and hurt his knee, uh, the day before we were supposed to interview him. And so I think that was bothering him. And then we, uh, we're going to interview him. I think it was the day after Obama and the Israelis were having issues. Um, I said, I think basically, yes, that, uh, you know, came down the elevator and I said, hi, I'm Steve. And he goes, he goes, he goes, you know, I'm really pissed off. I, 
I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really pissed up about what's going on in Israel and, and with Obama. I don't remember the specifics, but it was obviously they, they, we were not getting along with Israel or Israel was not getting along with us that day. So I'm going, all right, I'm going to have this, the kid glove. I immediately put on the kid gloves. And because my goal is to get him in front of that camera and have him talk about Larry and hopefully with some enthusiasm. And so we eventually get him to the room where we're set up. And, and he says to me, he says, I, I just want to go on the record and, and just say, say how I feel about what's going on with, uh, with the U.S. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In Israel right now, and and you know you can take it and you can sell it to a news outlet or something like that. But I I just want to get it out of my system. And I'm going. Well, I'm going to let him get it out of his system. So he kind of vented. He vented for it seemed like 15 minutes. It might have only been for five minutes. And then we basically got started. Everybody in the room said how much they loved him at Midnight Run and that we were just enormous fans. And we kind of gave him the curtain call that he never had, you know, because I think he said he only seen the movie once. And I don't know if he saw it with a crowd, but, you know, we were all so very complimentary. And, you know, I'd seen all these other movies, you know, like I'm a big fan of Report to the Commissioner and Across 110th Street. And everybody knows him from Alien and the Homicide. He told us how Barry Levinson kind of tricked him into doing homicide, which was sort of interesting. And then, uh, you know, he, it just sounded like Yaffet always was having a problem with something at any given point. And, you know, for example, when he did Midnight Run, you know, uh, he, I think he enjoyed the process and he, and he, and he did tell us one thing that was really interesting is that if you watch the movie, and if you're a fan of the movie, you see, every time you see Agent Mosley, he has more guys. His army kind of grows exponentially. You know, like by, by the time they, that, you know, he catches up with him in Arizona, he's got like, he's got 50, 60 guys, he's got a couple of helicopters, he's got cop cars, he's, he's got, for, for two guys. And he suggested to Martin Brest, he says, well, how about every time Mosley shows up, he has a bigger army. And, 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 uh, Martin Brest went with that idea. I thought it was a great idea. And so anyway, um, we got the interview. We got this interview with him. And, you know, he says, I never give interviews. I turn Roger Moore down and he wanted to do something. He wanted me to do something, but I love Larry so much. I'm willing to talk to you guys. So we got the interview. We signed the release. You know, we all be the sigh of relief. We talked to him a little bit more about his other movies and, you know, everybody that was in the room was a legitimate fan of his. And it wasn't just, you know, Alien, you know, which is probably a big one for him or Midnight Run, but, you know, the other pictures as well. So he kind of knew that we, we knew who he was and we paid attention to his career. And, um, <laughs> and then he started getting political with me. It was interesting. Like he said, do you think America's weak? And we're, we're literally walking away and I'm walking him back, you know, and, and I, I normally never do, I never bite on these things. I don't believe that the politics is the right place, you know, to go, uh, with, with these things. Um, but he was 
very feeling very political that day. And he says, do you think we're, we're, America's weak? Obama's weak? And then I just said to him, and I happened to hear this on Bill Maher some days earlier. And he said, do you think we're weak? And I said, I said, yeah, but we're not weak. I think we can kill anybody, anytime, anywhere if we can put a target on them. I said, we have, we have more aircraft carriers than the next three superpowers combined. We can, we are not weak. We have the ability to do whatever is necessary to protect ourselves. He goes, yeah, you know, you might be right. You might be honest. <laughs> I wasn't trying to convince him. I wasn't looking for a fight. I just, that was just, I just don't believe that we're weak. And that was the reason why. And so that was Yaffet. He was looking for a fight. He was pissed off. But when it came to talking about Larry, he was, he was uh, enthusiastic and articulate and, and, and very generous. And he's, he's a big fan of Larry's. So what is the plan for the release of the documentary? Well, the plan right now is we are we have been selected by four film festivals, and I and and I'm not being coy here. I can't tell you which what they are because they have they have to announce it. We're not allowed to announce it until they announce it. But uh, but they're festivals of some size, genre oriented. I'll give you a little clue there. And once we're done with the festival route, I think, you know, when you're doing a, a documentary, I think of any kind or an independent film of any kind, if you can get some laurels from the festival, that validates you in the eyes of a potential buyer or a distributor. Getting those laurels and being seen at festivals validates the movie. And you know how it is in Hollywood. Everybody wants something that's pre-sold or pre-validated or pre-something. Nobody wants to feel like they're taking a chance. And so one of the reasons why it's taken a while for us to get the movie out is the festival uh, dance that you have to do, you know, submitting and getting accepted and dealing with schedules. I mean, the movie was fundamentally done uh, at the end of la at the end of last year, beginning of this year. I mean, we're we're doing some final you know tweaks on it right now, just because we have the time and we're doing you know some adjusting on graphics and things like that. Sound, but the movie has been has been done. But when you are doing, um, unless you just want to throw the movie out and maybe get a you know a, a I'll say lousy. That's the first word that comes to mind. It's not really the right word. But if you get a lousy deal, well then then you 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 make your movie, you throw it out, you get a lousy deal, and that's it. So. Unfortunately, you have to, we're adding the better part of a year after the movie was done to do the festival dance and to do the festival circuit. But at the end of the day, I think it will be beneficial for us. So that's the long with an answer to your question. Your simple answer to your question is, I'm not entirely sure, but I would like to think it would be sometime towards the end of the year. And where can folks go to get those announcements and see what festivals you're playing at? Larry Cohen's Facebook page uh, is something that we are, you know, we're working with Larry and we're doing a lot of announcements through through that. Um, uh, my partner, Matt, uh, has, of course, the La La Land website because uh, La La Land Entertainment is the presenter of the movie. So we have that information. Um, the guys, my two partners are, you know, doing tweet related stuff and I'm sorry I'm I'm not entirely 21st century I still don't understand how tweets work but tweets are a form of getting the word out and getting you know eyes and ears you know to connect to your movie and so we're doing a lot of the twitterverse I think you call it not you but the, the universe calls it I'm doing 
I'm, I'm starting to do a bunch of interviews um, with guys like you talking about the movie whenever and wherever I can. We already have a lot of awareness and I think that's just going to start to grow, which is, which is all right. I don't, I don't mind trying to create a groundswell for this thing. I want people excited to see it and I'm excited for people to see it. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, I think every filmmaker says, Oh, I'm very proud of the movie, but I actually am, uh, just to sort of, you know, to digress for a second, uh, Kai and I were taking a look at it. I say not, not that long ago. It was probably a few months ago, but we hadn't really looked at it from start to finish for a while. And we sat down one day and we watched it. Um, we were trying to figure out some stuff to tweak, but we hadn't really watched it from start to finish. And we kind of turn to one another and we go, gee, you know, this isn't bad because as a filmmaker, you never know. You know, I mean, if you're a raging egomaniac and you believe that everything you touch is gold, okay, well, but I'm not that guy. But, you know, Kai and I worked really hard on this thing. And, you know, we were, like I said, we're in the middle of it. You know, you feel like you're in the middle of the ocean. And you don't know which way to paddle some days. And trust me, there were a lot of those days. But, um, you know, we sat, we watched, we're going, gee, this really isn't that bad. And the other thing that, and this was, this was, this was intentional is we tried to make it fun because Larry is a fun guy. And so that's partly, um, you know, uh, that was part of our intention. And there are some, you know, if you've seen the trailer, trailer's got some funny moments in it. And I got to give a shout out to the guy who cut my trailer, Zach Toe. Uh, I had nothing to do with the way the trailer was cut. We gave him the material and he said, well, this is, this is my take on it. And we had, I think, maybe a note or two at some point. But, you know, the funny that you get from the trailer is the funny that you get in the movie. And because Larry's a funny guy. Larry is a, you know, uh, an outrageous character. And, Whatever kind of storytelling you do, whether it's it's fiction, nonfiction, um, I think audiences attach themselves to great characters. I mean, when you think about any movie that you really love, my guess is great characters are in there. What you think are great characters. And Larry is a great character. Larry is a character from almost like a movie. And... We sort of celebrate that. That's part of what we're celebrating. The other thing that we're doing, and this was, I'd love to say that this was intentional, but it kind of turned out to be sort of one of these sidebar things that kicked in, is that it celebrates a kind of filmmaking that doesn't exist anymore. It celebrates a kind of filmmaking that, that I grew up with, which was low budget, sometimes very creative, wacky, let's get it done quickly and for no money, throw it against the wall kind of filmmaking. And the thing that we, that, that was in play then is if you could get a movie made and it was remotely good or interesting or commercial, it would get released in a theatrical way, whether, you know, it's mostly drive-ins or grindhouse or wherever. I mean, I grew up in New York city. I didn't have any access to, to drive-ins, but I had access to 42nd street which was Grindhouse a go-go. I mean, I had plenty of access to Grindhouse movies. Those movies could be seen theatrically, which they can't today. So an awful lot of movies get made, as you know, and unless you hunt movies out on a daily basis, <laughs> it's very hard to find some of these interesting gems that are direct-to-video type movies. But Larry was making those movies, and Larry's movies were, were going into theaters. Larry's movies, you know, played, you know, the black exploitation movies played at major venues in New York City. 
we have this one great photo in the documentary that Larry provided us of where he's he's in front of the Black Caesar logo at the at the RKO Cinerama Theaters on Broadway. Those were big houses, you know, and AIP was getting into these big A sized houses. And that was that was that was kind of the norm back in those days. And I miss those days. I miss those kinds of movies. Now, you know, Hollywood determines what you want to see based on marketing, as opposed to in those days you go, well, maybe we can make some money from this. And Larry was part of that. And I, and we're trying, in our own sort of small sidebar kind of way, I, I want to celebrate that. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I, you know, obviously wind me up and, and I'm, I'm off to the races. I can talk and talk and talk. Well, it was a real pleasure. I mean, you've got some great, great stories to tell, so this has been terrific. Hopefully the people who listen to this won't be bored out of their mind, but uh, whether they are or they aren't, they should see the film because the movie is not boring, and Larry is not boring. And that was was always the goal. And it's kind of fun, and uh, we can all use a little more fun these days, can't we? Do you feel that the United States is weak? No, I don't feel – well, now (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> That's a whole other podcast, man. Uh, I don't think the country is weak. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure about the people who are sitting in the front office, if you know what I mean. But boy, now that would be a conversation with the Cotto, wouldn't it? To see where see where he falls on things. Um, it's. Uh, I'll put it to you this way: We live in interesting times. Some days may be a little too interesting, but uh, like I said, that's a, that's a whole other conversation for another time. And now here's the man himself, writer-director Larry Cohen. Was writing your first entree into the business? Yes, writing was my way in. Yes, indeed. I thought that's the best way to get in because people don't have to risk any money to see what you've got. You know, you go in with a script and you've already written it, and they can see what you've written, and if they like it or not, or if they think it's promising. Uh, it's very hard to do it any other way. You could make a film, of course, but it takes time and a lot of people and money to do it right. And so uh, I thought that, that was definitely the way to, to go. I enjoy writing, too, so it was no problem doing it. What were those early days of television like when you got into it? Well, it was a wonderful period because it was ma- uh, mainly live television. That was at the very tail end of the live TV period. So you got to... Uh, sit down with the actors and the director and have a read-through of the script. And then there was uh, rehearsals all week long, uh, usually downtown Manhattan, uh, in some uh, some loft. They would set, the, set up the furniture and simulate the set, and they would have the actors perform in rehearsal, and I'd be there. And then, of course, on show day, I had to be there because... After the run-through in the afternoon, the show was either a little bit long or a little bit short, and uh, the writer had to uh, uh, make adjustments. So they had you there, and then you sat through the show in, in the control booth and watched them do it. There was no stopping. That was it. So if anybody forgot their lines or forgot their blocking or something, you know, you hoped that the audience wouldn't notice. It was It was a lot of fun. But then, of course, tape came in. And as soon as tape came in, that was the end of live. So then they didn't they didn't uh, stop and go correct any mistakes that were made, and uh, it was never the same after that. 
That was film. Uh, I, I, I got so that they stopped doing uh, much in the way of taping also, except for sitcoms, uh, because they thought that the uh, film versions had more life and more rerun value over the years. So, and that was, that was and they shifted mostly to Hollywood. Uh, pretty soon there was almost no television being done in New York City, except for a couple of game shows. You know, it was, it was, it became a different television. If you wanted to work in television, you had to go to California, which I did. Can you tell me, how did Branded come about? Branded was my first series that I sold and got on the air. That was unusual because I, we, we got the show on with, uh, just my six page treatment and Chuck Connor's commitment to star in it. Procter and Gamble agreed to sponsor the show on Sunday night at 8.30, which was a fabulous time period. And we came in after Walt Disney, and we were followed by Bonanza. So these were terrific shows, and they had a built-in audience. So we, we came in at a good spot. In those days, the uh, the sponsors, like Procter and Gamble, owned the time period. And they could program anything they wanted into that time period. That's all gone today. There's no more, none of that anymore. Uh, but in those days, you, uh, advertising agencies and their clients, who were the big sponsors, more or less owned the time periods. So we we got on the air. We, we got on the air within a few months' time. Uh, we ever never even shot a pilot. We actually got the commitment to go on the air, and then we shot the first episodes. And uh, uh, and it was, it was a high-rated show. It was up in the top ten for quite a while. What was that? period of time like for you when you're doing both feature films and still working in television? Well, I, I like to write, so it didn't matter to me. I, I was going to write something every day. So if I wasn't working on the television show, I would probably, uh, you know, be writing a screenplay. The first screenplay I sold was Return of the Magnificent Seven, which was made with Hugh Brenner, um, produced by the Mirish Company. And uh, it was it was quite successful, actually. It wasn't very good, but it was quite successful. Well, that must have been a little bit of pressure trying to follow up on The Magnificent Seven. Well, The Magnificent Seven was a strange story in that when it first was released, it didn't do very well at the box office at all. In fact, it never even got a major downtown release. It was re- it opened at the Brooklyn uh, uh, Brooklyn Theater and then played for uh, days on the Lowe's circuit. And then it was gone. Nobody paid much attention to it at the time. It became very popular on television over the years because all the actors became stars. James Coburn, Charles Bronson, everybody became stars out of that picture, and especially Steve McQueen. So it built up its uh, reputation from TV, and that's why uh, the Mirish Company called me in and said, we want to make a TV series out of the Big Seven. And I said, no, don't do that. I said, hey, you, I mean, you could get a sequel. You could get a movie out of this. And uh, I talked him into doing a movie version of it rather than going and trying to do a television series. And Neil Brenner agreed to star in it. So uh, we, we had something going for us. And, uh, you know, so I wrote the script. It took about two or three years for the damn thing to get made, even after I wrote the script. But it did get made. And at the time... Uh, they said to me, well, we can't use the music from the original picture because it's being used as an automobile commercial theme. And I said, well, if you're not going to use the mu- music by Elma Bernstein, then don't make the picture. There's no Magnificent Seven without that music. 
And again, I talked him into it. So, and that, that, that score was for the sequel was nominated for an Academy Award. It's funny that the original music for the first version was not nominated, but the same music over again was nominated for the sequel. It didn't win, but it was nominated anyway. You've worked with Fred the Hammer Williamson a lot throughout your career, and I'm curious, what was that first time meeting him like? Oh, it was perfectly amicable. We had a very nice time. He's got a great sense of humor. We could kid around and needle each other, and uh, uh, I always enjoyed Fred. I, I had a great time with him on all the pictures we did. The movies that you've made with him, especially Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem, those, they just really stand out as, I mean, he's made a lot of great pictures over the years, but those films really stand out as being just terrific. Well, he's made a lot of bad pictures too over the years, but those, those were two of the best. And Original Gangsters, which we did years later, I thought that was very well done and got very good reviews. And in that one, Fred was actually the producer. So we didn't get along quite as well because he was always worried about the money. Uh, he, he he wanted to come in under budget so we could keep the money. And I told him we had to we had to spend every penny to make a good movie, and uh, we did. Uh, but he wasn't too happy about not having any leftover money for himself as a little bonus. But we did get the movie made, and we we buried the hatchet after the picture was re- released and did well. And, uh, uh, we spent a lot of time together. He lives in Palm Springs. I go down and see him a lot. You go golfing with him? Oh, no, I don't do that. I wouldn't go out in that hot sun in Palm Springs for the golf club for anything. What was your experience like working on Columbo? Well, you know, Peter Falk made his television debut in the second live show that I wrote on Craft Playhouse. It was called Night Cry. Jack Klugman was the star. And Peter Falk came on and did like a five-minute scene as a little uh, informer trying to blackmail Jack Klugman. And I wrote this scene, and they, they got this guy. And as soon as we heard, had a reading of the, uh, of the play, uh, uh, everybody was amazed at how great this, uh, this new actor was. He was he, you know, he had a, a glass eye. And in those days, he hadn't mastered the art of hiding that. So... His eye, the eye kept swimming all the time back and forth. And one eye would go in the wrong direction. It really, it really worked for the character because he was supposed to be this underworld creature. And, uh, he was sensational in the part. And after the show was over, phones started ringing and people were calling from all over, and columnists and reviewers. They wanted to know who this guy was. And, uh, the producer of Murder Incorporated saw the show and decided to hire Peter Falk off that to play Abe Ellis in the movie Murder Incorporated, which was his motion picture debut, in which he wore the exact same costume he wore in my show and uh, played the same character, basically, and got an Oscar nomination for it. So then his career was on the way, and uh, we always stayed friends. <coughs> and years later, uh, he asked uh, Universal to hire me to write some Columbo episodes for him, which I did. Yours are definitely some of my favorite episodes, especially Any Port in a Storm. Everybody likes that one. It's one of the best oh. ones they ever did. I actually wrote the very first one of the series when they were... Uh, it was called Murder by the Book, and it was, uh, it was uh, uh, you know, acclaimed. It got an uh, a, uh, Emmy nomination, and uh, it was directed by Steven Spielberg. And the, 
the tra- my from my point of view, the tragedy of it was I, was I gave the I gave the script to uh, Levinson and Link, the creators of the show, uh, as a gift, and they turned around and gave it to Stephen Bochco, who put his name on it and collected the Emmy nomination and got to have a, a picture directed by Spielberg. He never oh. said he never said thank you. But he's been, he's been collecting the residuals on my story for, uh, uh, maybe 30 years now. So it must have mattered to a lot of money that he got. I got no thanks at all from, but, uh, uh, and Levinson and Link never really thanked me very much either. And, and Universal sent me a colored television as a gift. <laughs> I hated that television set. It just shows you that when you do a good deed, uh, you try to help somebody, it often doesn't work out that well. You should mind your own business. It's my own fault. I thought I was so, so uh, such a big shot. I could just give away a story and so what. But I learned to regret it. Can you tell me, how did uh, God told me to come about? Well, it was just another one of those ideas that came to me. I, and I wrote it. There was nobody else involved. There was no producer involved. And nobody nobody looking over my shoulder. I just wrote the whole damn thing. Um, then we went out and put it together and managed to get somebody to put up some money and we made the picture. It was, it's very apropos today because uh, all these terrorists, uh, they're all killing everybody in the name of God. And usually before they blow themselves up or shoot somebody, they yell, God is good. And it's pretty close to God told me to. So uh, I, nev- I never thought that it would finally basically come through. But that's what's been going on, and uh, that's what was happening in the movie. Can you tell me how Andy Kaufman got involved in the film? He got involved in the film because I saw him perform at the Improv in New York, and I thought he did a great job, and I went over to him afterwards and said, listen, I want to put you in a movie. I want to be the one who puts you in your first movie. And uh, I told him the idea was that he was going to be dressed as a police officer and march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade and then pull a gun and start shooting and assassinate a few people. And he he looked at me, he, I'm sure he thought, I finally met somebody crazier than myself. He said, everybody thought Andy was nuts, but they thought I was nuts too. So we were a perfect match. And he came down and we took him into a, uh, a coffee shop so he could change into his police uniform. He started a ruckus in the store, in the store and they had to ask him to leave. He started clowning around as a police officer. And when we got him out in the street, uh, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day. There was a lot of drunks around. And he's running over to the barricades and blinking his eyelashes at them and blowing kisses. And and uh, they were climbing over the barricades to kill him. I mean, I had, to, I had to protect him from the crowd. And he was provoking everybody. And that was Andy. But he did get in the parade, and he did he did his job, and I think he was very good in the very brief part that he had. And then when he had to die at the end, and he says, God told me to, which is his only line in the picture, is he's lying there dying. And uh, we had no microphone, because uh, we didn't record sound with this parade coverage. So uh, uh, when we got into the mix, uh, I had to do the line for, my, for myself. So actually, it's Andy's lips moving, but it's my voice coming out saying, God told me to. And when he finally saw the movie, Andy said to me, well, I know you didn't have any microphone there. How did you get my voice? And I said, Andy, it's not your voice. It's me. And he said, I know my own voice. Don't tell me that. And he wouldn't believe it. And he, and this went on for years. 
up until the time he died. Every time we ran into a big argument about whose voice that was on the screen. And uh, anyway, we were, we were very friendly, and I was talking to him about doing another picture. And we were on the phone. He was calling me every couple of weeks. How was how's it coming along? Uh, I love the script. Uh, we got the money. When can we start? And all the time he was calling me, he was in a wheelchair dying, and had, he couldn't have done the picture anyway. But And then one day somebody called me up and said, Andy died. I said, what are you talking about? I talked weeks ago, and that was the way it was. Maybe he had his, uh, a hope that somehow or other he'd be cured and be able to do the movie, or maybe he was just putting me on, you know, but whatever it was. It was a sad, sad, sad thing to see him go. He was a wonderful kid. Can you tell me um, about the American Success Company? That is such a, a, a fantastic film, and it doesn't seem to get seen as much as it should. You know, I don't, I don't like that picture particularly, but uh, it, it's, it's, it has its moments. I, I thought, I thought Jeff Bridges was wrong for the part. Uh, at the time, he wasn't much in the way of comedy, and uh, it needed, it, it needed a comedian of some kind, somebody with a real comic sensibility. At one time, I had signed Peter Sellers to star in the picture. He was at the bottom. He was at the nadir of his career before the Pink Panther came, returns came and brought him back again. But for a while, he he was not able to get any pictures because he had a bunch of awful films that hadn't even been released. So when I got him for a hundred thousand dollars, he was at a bargain basement price, and I couldn't get anybody in Hollywood to give me the hundred thousand dollars to pay his salary. I had to go back to the agency and beg them not to charge me the money because I couldn't deliver the picture for him to star in. And they were kind enough to let me off the hook. But that, but the meeting I had with Peter Sellers was very good, and I'm sure would, I would have had a lot of fun directing him. But anyway, when somebody came along and wanted to buy the script, I sold it to them. That was about it. I didn't have anything to do with the actual production of the picture. And, and I, I, I think they shot about 50% of the actual script. They, uh, there was a lot more to it and a, a lot more twists, and they cut it down to a uh, minimal. So what can you say? I'm glad you liked it anyway. Have you ever had your screenplays published? Uh, no. I would like that, though. If somebody would like to publish screenplays, I've got a bunch of ones that have never been seen before that would be wonderful to be published. But uh, I, I, I don't know if there's much, much of a market for for published screenplays. Well, you've got so many stories that are just so tight. I mean, it, I'm not trying to butter you up, but it's just so many of your films are kind of a master class to me of storytelling, things like the ambulance and phone booth. I mean, these the scripts, the, the stories just ripple when they're on screen. I would love to be able to read those and just see the way that you put those together originally. Well, I would be happy to have them published if anybody came forward and said they wanted them. Uh, they're here, they're here, and they're available. And uh, I, I just don't intend to go banging on doors uh, asking people to publish them. Uh, I have, I'm too busy writing new scripts to, to be doing that. You're still writing every single day. Just about, yeah. Not on weekends anymore. But uh, sometimes I even do it on weekends. If 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 I have an idea and I want to keep going with it, I just, uh, you know, I don't care what day of the week it is. I'm going to write the damn thing. How did Steve Mitchell approach you about King Cohen? They called me on the phone and said they wanted to do a documentary about me. And I said, okay, but I, I'm not going to have anything to do with this, uh, making it a documentary. 
I don't want to get involved in uh, looking over your shoulder or critiquing what you're doing because I'm a control freak. And if I get involved with something, I want to be in absolute control of every phase of it. And I don't want to do that with this project. I want you to go do what you want to do and, and don't show it to me till after it's finished. So that's what we did. What did you think of it when you finally saw the finished product? I only just saw it up in Canada in Montreal at the uh, film festival. It was the first time I saw the picture. Uh, I was pleased with it. There were some things I would have liked to have included that weren't in there, but uh, in general, he did a very good job. That has to be difficult to see. Well, maybe not difficult, but it has to be interesting to see your career being explored on screen by somebody else. As I say, I, I, I tried to be objective and let them do what they wanted to do with the picture. And, and and the audience seemed to like it, and it won the best documentary up in the Montreal Festival. So I guess it went over well. And I hear it went over very well in London just last week. So we'll see what happens. I know it's going to play in, uh, there's an uh, engagement in Austin, Texas, and one in Paris, and one in Lisbon. Uh, and it's, it's going into a lot of festivals. So uh, I, I'll I'll see what happens. I know uh, Maniac Cop and It's Alive have kind of taken on lives of their own and have gone on uh, even past your involvement necessarily. But I am curious when they do a remake of Maniac Cop or It's Alive, are you involved at all in those things? Well, certainly not in that last It's Alive fiasco that was done in Bulgaria. It was uh, it was really an embarrassment, but uh, the money was very good. I, I enjoyed cashing the check, and that was the end of my enjoyment. The picture was was just disastrous, and I certainly urge everybody not to see it. So uh, you know, it was just a, it was just a mess, and uh, they would they wouldn't accept any help from me. So uh, that's the way it was. Uh, as far as the maniac cop, there's the three of them we made. There's talk about a fourth one, but uh, I didn't write it. I have nothing to do with it. And uh, except that they have to pay me a good deal of money, and I hope they make it. So I, I'm looking forward to cashing that check as well. But I, I have nothing. I have nothing to do with it. For some reason, they decided to uh, have another writer come in. I guess they're just afraid that uh, I, I would take control if I was involved, and they didn't want to give up control. So uh, uh, that was the way it was. It's okay because. Uh, you know, I I had done enough Maniac Cops. I wanted to do something different. I don't want to write the same thing all over again, although I, I could have written, I think, a better script than I came up with. But uh, apparently up to now, they haven't raised the money, and uh, I, I don't know any details about the picture coming out. But I do wish them luck. Why not? I know that you've done a lot of work uh, adapting Ed McBain's uh, books, the 87th Precinct books. Have you ever thought about or, or written any fiction on your own as far as paperbacks? No, never. No. There have been some paperbacks made of It's Alive and God Told Me Too, but they were never written by me. Your version of I, the Jury, I really enjoy. And I'm curious, what was it like adapting Mickey Spillane? Well, I never met Mickey Spillane. Uh, I, I, I read in a, in a journal that uh, I, the Jury was the high, uh, highest grossing and the biggest bestseller of any private detective or detective novel of any kind. So I wondered, why did they make such an awful movie out of it many years ago in 3D, which is what, what happened to it. 
and that, and that was followed by a bunch of really substandard movies about the character of Mike Hammer, except for the one that Robert Aldrich did with, uh, uh, with Ralph Meeker. Uh, as considered to be a pretty good movie, but all the others were just bad. And then I read an article by Bosley Crowther uh, with a, uh, a review of the movie uh, James Bond's Dr. No, the first Dr. No film, and he reviewed it in the New York Times, and he said the character of uh, uh, Sean Connery plays Agent 007 uh, owes a lot to Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer. So I said, well, there you are. If they had made the, uh, the Mike Hammer films in a quality way and spent some decent money and gotten some decent casting, they could have had a big series like James Bond. So I went out and optioned by the jury and wrote a screenplay and put it on the market, and we made a deal with this company, uh, American Cinema, that really had no, had no uh, decent credits, but they, they wanted to make the they didn't stop them. And finally, uh, uh, you know, they, I was supposed to direct the film, but once I got involved with them, they, they were into the degree that I... Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I worked on the thing for about a week, and when they, uh, I kept interfering all the time, so I decided I just don't want to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll do something else myself. So basically, uh, I left and started shooting Q the next day. Uh, we were actually in production the day after I left out of the jury. We were working out of the same hotel in New York as the other jury people. They'd see me every morning with a different bunch of actors and crew members. They couldn't believe I was shooting another movie. We finished uh, way ahead of them and on budget. They went way over budget. The company filed bankruptcy. And finally, six months later or so, the both movies opened in New York on the same day, oddly enough. Uh, we were at the Rivoli, and they were at the Theater Down the National, down, down the block, about two blocks away. And their picture cost seven times as much as Q, and Q did uh, four times as much business. So it was a total vindication. And... Uh, I don't think I think Jury is a bad picture. It's uh it's based on the script that I wrote pretty much. You know, I liked uh I'm Sani was a pretty decent character as uh as Mike Hammer and Laurie Landon was excellent as his sidekick. So uh it had some some good points to it and a lot of people like that film. Yeah, I'm uh just reading uh, Kiss Me Deadly right now, and so Mickey Spillane's been on my mind a lot lately, so I want to go back and revisit that one. It's been a, a few years since I've seen Eye of the Jury. Most of the uh, James Bond movies were very poorly made, and uh, it's a shame. In those days, back in that period, if you made sequels, the sequel was always supposed to cost half of what the, pre- the previous picture cost, and then the next sequel even cheaper. Uh, today, however, when they make sequels, they spend more money on the sequel and then more money on the second sequel and, uh, and it pays off at the box office. So, you know, cutting corners is not the best way to go. But the original, uh, Eye of the Jury, which was made in 3D, uh, was not a very good movie at all. So, you know, uh, we had, we had nothing to beat. We couldn't do worse than they, they did. When you're not writing, what else are you working on these days? Well, we've got a, a, a musical uh, Broadway that I'm working on, written by the Sherman Brothers, who, who wrote Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and, and Jungle Book. Uh, and this is, uh, we're going to have a, a, a production of it out here in, uh, in uh, 
around Thanksgiving for for ten days, and hopefully get it into one of the uh, regional theaters, and eventually go to Broadway. So that's something that's fun to do, if I'd never done a musical before. And so uh, that's one project, and then I got uh, a project with a uh, bad robot company for a series of thrillers, the cable with a J.J. Abrams as executive producer. I've written all the scripts for the whole first season, and we're just putting it together now. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we get it on the air and uh, certainly keep me busy. I, although I've already written all the episodes, I'm working on the second season. So I'm, I'm keeping, I'm keeping. That's the fate of t- television today and movies today. Is the uh, that cable is, has come in and has really taken over as the premier entertainment entity, no matter what, how you look at it. And the shows on cable are better than the movies that are put in the theaters. The theater movies are very big, spectacular, full of explosions and car chases, but not much content. The really interesting stuff is being done on at Netflix, uh, Showtime. So uh, that's what we're doing. Well, you've stuck around long enough that now things have gone back to television. Well, that's true. It's certainly in a much bigger way than we ever envisioned in tele- at the time we were doing television. In these little studios in the RCA building. I mean, you know, the, today the studios we shot our shows in are used mainly for news broadcasts. Uh, they're too small for uh, uh, for any uh, large-scale production. But in those days, everything was done out of these little studios with some very, very good directors and some very fine writers, so and great actors too. So that's the period. But if you look at the shows, I mean, uh, that, that were done then, uh, you know, they're, they're deficient in many ways also. But you know, I was pleased. To, to work in that period at least for a couple of years, and and I certainly uh, have uh, never achieved anything quite like it. It was it was a great deal of fun because of your association with the director and the writers and and the and the cast that you uh, you know you really felt you were part of a team. Mr. Cohen, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure. Well, I'm glad you called, and I'm glad you've seen so many of my movies. You know, most of them are available on Netflix. It's just Say my name, and then my picture comes up, and then an arrow, and you can look at this. Fourteen of the movies I think on there, and you can order any of them, one of them instantly. So I hope you tell your readers that because they don't have to wait for a revival house or to go out and seek the movies. These are right there for them in their own home. All they got to do is punch the button, pay a few bucks, and they get to see the movie. It's uh, it's wonderful for me because it makes my films available to people. That's really what you want in the long run is for people to be watching your films. All right, well, thanks for the call, and uh, I hope, hope I'll run into you sometime.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.